Greetings to you, brethren, around the world. By the way, they'll be taping this, and of course, this will be played a few weeks later, wherever you are. Welcome to any guests who may be here. This is one of our lowest attendances. We just had 175, I see, today, because so many are gone to the camp out. But I think from now on, the attendance will probably head up. And I expect we'll have around 240 or 50 by the end of the year, because we've kept growing and growing, and we already have been up to 200 and 20 or 30 quite a number of times before the summer season set in. Brethren, most of you know, and from what Mr. Uh, uh, League announced and some of the statistics we give you, you know the work is continuing to grow, and we are very grateful for that. We're getting more responses on average almost every six-month period, just comparing six months to six months. Our television increases are coming along, our television responses, and the income is coming along slowly but surely in spite of the national problems that we have. And we're grateful for what Christ is doing. Most of you realize that prophetic events are speeding up, and I hope you're thinking about this. We've had record heat waves coming across big parts of the United States. A number of all-time records have been set in cities all across the Midwest and the East. And, of course, terrible floods have been elsewhere. Also, we're having this terrible upset with the financial crisis coming right up to the brink. And if this occurs, if these politicians do not work out a financial settlement, it is going to bring our nation down even faster. It really will. Meanwhile, a number of the British and European papers are saying that Germany is going to get her empire after all. The Germans have always wanted an empire. And they say the empire, and they're using that term, Germany is getting her empire. Because the Germans are having to finance the bailouts of Greece and some of these other southern European nations. And they are giving the Germans increasing power and authority over various aspects of the nations over there. So they're going to get the empire in a different way than we thought. Although God says there in Revelation that ten kings will give their power to the beast. Remember Adolf Hitler came in and attacked Poland. He attacked Czechoslovakia and conquered them. He attacked France and Belgium and Luxembourg and Holland and all those nations and took them over by force. This time, it's going to happen a different way. Probably this financial thing is, in fact, preparing the way for that and causing them to give their power and authority to the one who will ultimately be the beast there in Germany. So these things are coming along, and it's important to watch and realize that we are coming up to the end of an age. And, brethren, we are trying to increase the power in this work. I think you're going to see the power in this work increase a great deal more just within the next two years. And I'm not exaggerating. We've got plans underway, and we are going to do things with all of our being. And I hope all of you will get excited about it. I hope all of you, brethren, will pray, and I hope you, brethren, around the world who see this will pray very much for Mr. Ames' co-worker letter. The co-worker letter is going out right now. He wrote a very fine co-worker letter. I've asked him to write a couple of co-worker letters every year to replace me and my co-worker letter in case something should ever happen to me. And I want that to be done. This is not Rod's church. It's God's church. And I think all of you have figured that out. We are the church of God. And this work is going forward with greater power than ever. But brethren, with increasing power 
And most of you know this, but I think it's important at this time as I foresee things happening in the world, as we read about this nutcase over in Norway who uh, killed all these people over there. I think it's up to 93 now and still counting uh, quite a number of people he killed over there just in the last day or two. And we're going to have more and more situations like that all over this earth. You all know that more and more terrorism and more and more demon-influenced or even demon-possessed people are going to do terrible things. We're living into that age. But with increased power in the work of God, we've got to get out there and tell them things they don't want to hear. And they won't like what we have to say. Many times, men love darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. That's what Jesus Christ said. And they won't like what we preach because we're going to expose them to the truth, to the light. And it will not be fun stuff at all. And they're going to come after us. And even though many of our brethren are gone from here today, I know this will be played in another three to six weeks elsewhere. And hopefully most of the brethren will be there in that part of the world. So I thought I'd go ahead and give this, which is very important as a basic message for all the church of God. I want you to turn with me, if you would, first of all, to Matthew chapter 24. We often start there in a prophetic sermon. We often start there in a prophetic sermon. But I'm going to speak to you about persecution. Prepare for persecution. Notice what Jesus said. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came, saying, When will these things be in the sign of your coming and the end of the age? He describes false prophets. He describes wars and rumors of wars. He says in verse 7, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and pestilences or disease epidemics, which are going to come big time, and earthquakes. Luke, Luke's account in Luke 21 says great earthquakes, not just normal earthquakes. Great earthquakes will come in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you. And that's us, brethren, when you think about it, because it wasn't going to happen just to them. It was to happen to all of God's people, especially God's true people, of course. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation. And, of course, he says then, meaning now, when these things begin to happen at the time of the end. So he's talking about us. They deliver you and me up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Now, this is discouraging from one point of view, but it's encouraging from another point of view. It shows that this work, or at least if we won't do it, someone else will, and we better be the ones that do it. Some part of the church of God on this earth today will become so powerful that all nations will know about it, and they will hate those doing it. They can't hate you unless they know who you are, if you follow me. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. So we've got to understand that. All nations will eventually hear about the true servants of God preaching his message, and they won't like it. And then many will be offended and betray one another and hate one another. So these things are going to happen. But he says in verse 13, he that endures to the end, and we've got to endure the end. It's so easy to give up and quit in my almost 62 years in God's work because I did come to Ambassador College about 62 years ago. I have seen literally scores and actually thousands of brethren that I knew fall away. It's really sad that these things happen. Leading ministers fall away. 
evangelists fall away. All kinds of people turning away from the truth of God. And I've experienced that. And I know them. I can start naming names that a lot of you older brethren would know. It's sad. But God is trying and testing every one of us. And this coming tribulation that is going to come on the people of God is going to be another test, not just the final tribulation, but the persecution that definitely is going to start coming as we get bigger. So Jesus said that you will be hated at that time by all men for my name's sake. Turn now back to chapter 5, if you would, of Matthew. Let's go back to the Sermon on the Mount, as this is called, Matthew 5. And I'm going to begin here in verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. We're not to be out causing trouble. We've got to preach the truth. And that may not bring peace, as Jesus said on other occasions, but at least we've tried to do our best to bring peace. They shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not kingdom in heaven, but the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you, say you, and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. When I was courting my present wife, I told her, I said, honey, if you marry me, you're going to see all kinds of people say bad things about me. And I told my children that as they grew up. I wasn't surprised at any of that. I've not been any surprised yet. In fact, I've been surprised it's been as little as it has been because for years I was one of the leading evangelists helping Mr. Herbert Armstrong, and they called him every name in the book. Some of them just filthy names and crass names and attacking him as a false prophet and you blank, blank, dirty, awful language and so forth, trying to attack our church and say we're not teaching the truth and so on. Boy, they would get mad at him. And back then, he often started out the World Tomorrow program, as a lot of you older brethren know. Uh, he'd say, and greetings, friends around the world. This is Herbert W. Armstrong and so on. My friends... Why aren't these preachers teaching the Bible? Why do all the preachers around the world tend to preach out of their own imagination? Why don't they preach the truth? He'd literally start out the program that way in those days. And boy, that would make people mad. And they didn't like that. And I remember Ted Armstrong and I were on a baptizing tour together. And I was the leader because I had been his teacher in college. The four years I was in college, he was in the Navy and so we went out together. We became friends during that time. And I was used to the tour and told him how to do it. But we came up these old rickety uh, board steps in this uh, uh, guy's house down in the swamps. And, uh, and it, he was a real uh, absolute hick. And he was unshaven and had his overhauls on and hairy chest and so on. And he came out on the front porch and as we came marching up to his uh, house... He said, where are you boys from? And we were just 24-year-old young men, so he called us boys. That's okay. And we said, Ambassador College. Ambassador College. Armstrong! And he grabbed a chair and came right down on our head. Of course, we were young and in good shape, better than he was, and we grabbed the chair. And we were wrestling around with the chair, and he was cussing and kicking and all. So then he said, I'm going to go get the gun. 
Well, I kind of thought, we, I said, went like that to Ted, we shouldn't run in his house. It was his house. So we just stood on the front porch. We weren't going to run scared. We just prayed. We kind of half bowed our heads and prayed. And he came back with the chair and instead of a shotgun. And that was really a nice looking chair. I thought, boy, I'm glad to see another chair. <laughs> Best chair I ever saw. So we were glad to take that chair away. And, and uh, he was wrestling us down into the yard and cussing and fighting. And I've told you that story before. But anyway, people didn't like the preaching of God's truth back then. Berkman there and I were on a tour and we went up to this farmer's home somewhere in Mississippi or somewhere there. And this little tiny guy came out with big old old fashioned uh, gold horn glasses and little thin glasses or, you know, tiny and beady eyed. And he had his a 22 rifle and he came out to the gate before we could get in. And he said, what you want? And he said, well, we're here to talk to Mrs. So-and-so, and, well, you get. I said, well, uh, we just want to talk to your wife, and we're just going to talk about the Bible. We, you can talk, sit there with us, and there's no problem, and we don't want anything. We'll just talk about the Bible. And uh, she'd written us, and she wants us to come see her. And he said, you get. And we didn't get. I talked some more. I was the leader. So he pointed the gun right at me and cocked it. He said, you'd better get. So we got <laughs> and we later wrote her and got her to come over to Big Sandy and get baptized over there. But at any rate, we had a lot of cases like that all across the Bible Belt, especially because people would be all heavy in their religion and they didn't like, you know, what we were teaching at all, what Mr. Armstrong was teaching primarily. We haven't had a lot of that yet because Mr. Ames and I are more careful what we say, lest we get kicked off of television stations. He could say things on the old radio stations, XEG out of Mexico, that you couldn't say on the television stations today. So there's a fine line. How strong do we preach? We don't want to cut off our opportunity to preach, but we've got to preach stronger, and we are going to preach more strongly. We're going to have more powerful articles and more sermons and more churches everywhere, and we will be persecuted. He says, blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven so, so, and so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. They've always persecuted God's true prophets. And we want to understand that, brethren. We need to understand it. We need to prepare for it. I want you to prepare for coming persecution. Are you preparing yourself for your part in it? Because you are part of the true church of God. And they won't just come after me. Some of your relatives or or people around you will hear about what you believe, and they will come after some of you. They will come after some of our local ministers, of course. So we've all got to be prepared and think about it and think through ahead of time about what it means. Jesus said back in Matthew 10, turn to Matthew 10 now if you would. And when he called the twelve disciples, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. He sent them out with this power. It names them. And then it said, verse 5, these twelve sent, Jesus sent out. And he said in verse uh, 8, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, uh, 
raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. So they were to go out and preach the truth, and God would be with them as they went out and did these things. But notice now, beginning verse 16, Jesus said, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. People in the world... This guy that killed about 93 or 95 or 7, however, is going to come out to be all these people, was probably demon-influenced to do that. And we're going to have more people the devil will grab hold of, and just their human nature will grab hold of, too. And some of them may be demon-influenced, some may be literally possessed. But it doesn't make any difference. They're going to try to kill many of God's people. We will be sent out in the midst of wolves, and we've got to be aware of that. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. We've got to be wise in preaching as strong as we can and yet not get kicked off all the stations, of course. And yet we've got to continually, gradually help people understand the whole purpose of human existence, to understand the truth, to understand that this world's religion is not God's religion. It did not come from God. It came from Satan the devil, that Satan is the God of this age, and he is the one invisibly influencing our entire society. We've got to be careful. But beware of them, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. They're going to beat you up, just like this uh, farmer tried to beat us up, Ted Armstrong and me, and I've had that happen quite a number of times through the years. I won't tell you any more stories now. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and the Gentiles. Now, Mr. Armstrong went before them, and he was invited, and he was able to work it out to have a kind of a ambassadorial ambassador for peace without portfolio, he called himself. But this is not like that. You will be brought. We will be brought in handcuffs or chains. At like the Apostle Paul, you will be brought before governors as a testimony to them. But when they deliver you up, don't worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given you in that hour what you should speak. Some of us may be brought before rulers. What's wrong with you people? Why aren't you patriotic? You say you're not to go off and fight our wars. You think you have another kingdom up in heaven. What kind of people are you? You talk about another king and so on. And they're going to come on us about this because we will get stronger and stronger and they won't like it. There'll be other things they won't like. But God says he will let us know what we should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Notice verse 21. Now brother will deliver up brother to death and a father his child and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. That hurts me. I have six children. Will any of my six turn on me? They could. Jesus said that will happen before it's over. Not to everybody, but some will. So we all have to think about it to do the best we can with our family. But know that this kind of thing is going to happen. The one that got the most mad at me when I came to Ambassador College was were my own family. They didn't hate me, but boy, they were mad at me going out there to Armstrong and leaving the Methodist church and going out there to Armstrong. And what's wrong with you? And uh, they, they didn't like it at all. And Jesus said that would be the case. You will be hated by all 
So we've read over these things. We don't often think they're going to happen because they haven't happened yet very much. But brethren, they did happen quite a bit back in 1948 and 9 and up through 55 or 7 when I was on the early tours and learning about the truth and going out. These things did happen a lot more back then than they have happened recently. But they're going to happen a lot more at the very time of the end. And I want you brethren around the world and Perth, Australia and down in, uh, down in South Africa and you brethren in Britain, get ready for this. This kind of thing is going to happen. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end, you've got to say, I'm going to prove this truth. I'm going to prove where God Almighty is working, and I'm not going to let any small stuff get in the way. People in the church sometimes, if something isn't exactly right, or everything is not just hunky-dory and smooth and easy going, they just drop away. Well, that's up to you. You can drop away, but we hope for your sake you won't. Not just for our sake. God will bring someone in to replace you, frankly, if you don't stay. But if you stay in the very church of God, your reward will be awesome if you put your whole life in God's church. You're not to find some little excuse to get your feelings hurt or to just slowly drop away in the world and be overcome by the cares of this world. God indicates that's going to happen to most people, and it has happened to most of them. You think about the 155,000 people we had at the very, very peak a few years ago on Worldwide, and where are they? Most of them aren't in any branch of the church of God. They're not here. They're not around. So he said, you will be hated by all, but he who endures to the end will be saved. And when they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For assuredly, I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. So we will not have finished going through, you know, where everyone knows about the message. God doesn't say every human being is going to get a message, but we're to reach the world as a witness as best we can. And God can multiply what we do. But we will not have finished doing that before Christ comes back to this earth. So he says that a disciple is not above his teacher or a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple to be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house, the lead one in the very work of God at that time, Jesus Christ himself, if they call Christ Beelzebub, the head of the demons, if they call Christ that, what are they going to call us? We've got to realize that. Therefore, do not fear them. Our Father in heaven, brethren, tells us not to fear those people when they come after us in this work of God. Do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Whatever I tell you in the night, speak in the light. Whatever you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. We've got to warn this world while we have the opportunity. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. They cannot kill our hope of life. They can kill our present body. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in Gehenna, as it is in the margin. He can burn our body and even our take our life, our whole possibility of life, in Gehenna fire if we turn away from him. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? 
and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. It's not that God directs every sparrow and whether they fall or not. He doesn't watch every sparrow in that way, but he, he it's, they don't fall apart from the father's will. In other words, God knows about it. If he wanted to stop it, he could. God doesn't sit around worrying about every mosquito and every everything, but he could stop it. He's aware. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. And he does say that specifically. Every hair on your head is numbered. Some of us old guys don't have as many hairs as we used to. (laughs) Mr. Punch and I can relate to that. But the hairs that we do have are all numbered. God knows everything about you. He knows the way you are. He knows the way you dress. He knows the way you take care of yourself. He knows the way you try to honor him and the way you take care of your body. He knows the way you honor him and the way you take care of your mind. If you read good things and build up your mind and your attitude and your strength and your capacity, he knows your attitude, what you're thinking. Even now, he's aware of all those things. Yes, he is. And God is very aware about what we're thinking and what we're doing because we're the very tiny few that he's calling out of this world to be full sons of God in the coming resurrection. So he lets us know that the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, for you are of more value than many sparrows. In God's sight, we're so much more value. He is making us, he's fashioning us, molding us, working with us individually, making us to be full sons in his coming family. And that's a wonderful thing to understand. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him will I confess before my Father in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, him will I deny before my Father in heaven. Brethren, don't ever be ashamed to say that you are a Christian and let them know that you're a member of the church of God. You don't have to go into every detail with every salesman and every person you meet on the street. You know, you need to give them the information in a wise way. But don't ever deny that you are a child of God, that you are a Christian, that you're a follower of biblical Christianity. When people ask me, well, you mean you don't keep Sunday? And I said, oh, we keep the biblical Sabbath. I had a neighbor ask me that just a few weeks ago. I said, we keep the biblical Sabbath, the Sabbath that Jesus and the apostles kept. Oh, it looked kind of funny and walked off. So I don't know what he thought about that, but he's still friendly. But you have to let them know the truth. that They try to say the Jewish Sabbath. It's better to say we keep the biblical Sabbath, the Sabbath that Jesus and the apostles kept. And they can't say otherwise. If they do, we can prove them wrong very, very easily. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. Most of us, you brethren, even you new brethren coming in, you've heard that all your life. I heard that all my life in the Methodist church, you know, uh, peace on earth and goodwill toward men and and all these Christmas songs and all these other songs, and they give the idea that Christ is just loving and sitting on a white mule and looking all like a woman and bringing peace. He goes holding out the peace sign or something. No, he didn't come like that. 
he came vigorously into the temple and he ripped the tables over and the glasses and things that probably women were yelling and, and, and things were flying. The change was flying everywhere. He said, you get these animals out of here. Don't make my father's house a house of merchandise. God's house was the temple of God. Jesus did not have a nicey nice tea party wherever he went. He sometimes upset the establishment. He was a very strong, vigorous, 30 to 33-year-old young man who was very well built. He was the one who said, whatever you do, do with your might. When he was a carpenter, and if you went to Israel, which I've been several times, they have some timber, but they built with heavy stones. It wasn't just timber, but heavy stones and timber. So he must have been doing this kind of stuff all day long. And he did it with his might. He must have been very strong. And so when they didn't attack Jesus, when he was throwing him out of the temple, I think there were several reasons. I think one that they knew they shouldn't really mess with him in the first place. And he may have had some of the 12 apostles standing nearby. But thirdly, we know there was, there's something about him they didn't understand. He talked with such authority and they'd heard this man heals the sick. He casts out demons. They, they knew he was, there's something going on there. And they didn't try to fight him. They backed off on occasion after occasion. But even physically speaking, Jesus was all man. Don't think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes will be those of his own household. And I, the most hateful letter that I ever got in all my life, including uh, even, uh, wasn't cussing, or I guess I've got worse letters in that way from outsiders, but just kind of hateful was uh, from a person in the family, a relative, and someone that felt I had upset my mother by going into Armstrongism. And boy, she really attacked me, and uh, I, you know, one of my aunts, frankly, and, of course, she thought I was very bad for making my mother upset by coming. I didn't do anything bad to my mother except go to a bastard. But they, they, I think she, she at that point would like to have shot me if she could have. But uh, that your man's foe shall be they of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves daughter or son more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross... Remember, cross was an instrument of torture, of humility. He who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Brethren, each of you has got to be willing to give up things. You've got to be willing to sacrifice things in order to serve God. I'm not telling you to do something I've never been willing to do, and I have not done it perfectly at all. Mr. Armstrong had to give up his businesses, and he had to eat very lightly and sometimes had virtually no food at all. And when I went up to Oregon on two or three occasions after graduating from Ambassador College, well, I talked to uh, various people up there. Helen Starkey, the first uh, employee of the work of God who came in that little unlit inside office they had. And I got to know her and her husband up there. And uh, I got to talk to a number of the other older members who'd known Mr. Armstrong. And some of them just called him Brother Armstrong or Herbert and Loma. They meant it respectively, but they known them. I said, did Mr. Armstrong really have to do without? And did he go around uh, having to put 
pasteboard in his soles of his feet because the shoes wore out and he couldn't get them fixed? They said, yes, we've seen that. They said, Mr. Armstrong was a proud man. We knew that. He had, you know, he let them know that he'd been in business. But he said he, at times, because they had so little and he had to beg, he would literally fasten his his uh, coat together with a safety pin. He didn't have enough money and or didn't want to borrow buttons, and he just fastened his coat together in the Oregon winter with a safety pin. And they had a lack of food many times over the first several years of the work. Mrs. Apartin is sitting out here. She'll remember a little bit of this. It was even worse before you came, surely, but it was got, got better year by year. But often back in those early years, we did not have enough to eat. And I remember that we, I could have gone home. My parents would have taken me in, but I didn't want to do that. And so we just stayed. And us fellows ate in the Mayfair basement, which was the student body, student dorm at that time. The one girl, Betty Bate, lived on the first floor with Annie Mann, and the fellows lived on the third floor. And uh, the old ladies' rumors that helped pay the rent, they lived in between. They were all in their 70s and 80s. And uh, as they would die and move out, we'd take over that space as the college grew. But we fellows had to eat in the basement, and sometimes we didn't have very much regular food. We'd literally have to eat wheat and uh, just some, just remember Raymond and Mary McNair would buy a whole sacks full of wheat and cook it, and uh, we'd just eat wheat or uh, and so on. Or Dr. Hayes' mother would bring us uh, rye bread and German cheese occasionally. And Mr. and Mrs. Eckert, another really nice German couple who were local, they'd bring us food. And Mrs. Elliott, Mr. Elliott, by the way, was the first dean of students of Ambassador College. And he is dying right now. You might pray for him if he's not dead yet, I guess. I heard yesterday he was dying. I just heard that yesterday afternoon and haven't had time to answer. But we need to pray for him. He's a very fine man. He's up about 90. He's not someone young. But his wife used to bring us a salad. She says, I know you you, you guys won't fix salads. Men don't do that. And she couldn't bring us anything expensive because meat was too expensive. But she would bring us some lettuce and tomato salad and we would get by and uh, we we all kept living i'm still here it didn't hurt us <laughs> but we had to we had to as mr armstrong said he used to say i have one suit for every day in the week and this is it and that's the way with most of us i came to ambassador college in 1949 with one suit and i graduated three years later uh, with the same suit and that was it and uh, you had to be very very careful because there wasn't any money and poor Vern, the business manager, had to dole out. When After we graduated, we have to beg for our check, even to get a check. And just before the landlady would throw you out, you'd go and beg Vern for a check, and he'd very sadly give you one check so the work didn't go broke. But we had to do that. Many, many situations like that on the baptizing tour, miss meals. And we usually didn't get more than one hot meal a day and sometimes didn't get that. Once or twice, we didn't have enough money to have a motel. And we would just sleep in the in the car all night and get up and go all the next day. And we would eat, you know, uh, prunes and uh, seemed like we always had enough prunes, <laughs> prunes and raisins and uh, and nuts or something just out of sacks, you know, in the car. And usually the only m- meal we got that was a warm meal was at night. 
and we'd have a hot meal in the uh, fancy restaurants uh, in the Ritz-Carlton, wherever we were. And I'm kidding. I hope you all know there weren't any Ritz-Carltons back there. And when you got to Lufkin, Texas, and uh, uh, Selma, Alabama, and all these places we went to, they, they had Ma's Cafe or, or the local whatever. You know, we ate, had to eat wherever it was. And I noticed that Raymond and I, or Burke or I, or the next summer I went out with Dr. Hay on a tour. We nearly always ordered the, the same thing. You know why? Because we were automatons. No, there's usually usually only one item on the menu that was clean and also wholesome. So we would usually end up ordering, you know, whatever it was, the same thing. And uh, we had to be careful. And my only sin back in those days, I had a lot of worse sins, of course, than other, but eating. I, they seemed like in those days they did have one extravagance. You'd eat in these small southern cafes or in the Midwest, and you'd get this little set meal it was very inexpensive, and they'd nearly always give you a little scoop of ice cream with that. And I, I would eat the ice cream no matter what. <laughs> it was hot, so I got my ice cream. Anyway, Mr. Aparty, Mrs. Aparty has heard this story. I told him at the beginning of the tour I took him on. I said, well, D-Bar, I said, uh, be sure you don't let me eat too much ice cream or it'll go on my sinuses. But I seemed like even on the tour we went on in Northern California and Southern Oregon, about half the time they'd give us a little scoop of ice cream. Well, you know, you can't waste something if they give it to you. That's wrong, isn't it, to waste things? So I would eat my ice cream, and he persecuted me. <laughs> so we're all persecuted. Okay. Anyway, that's the way it is. But, brethren, we do have to think about this. How much are you willing to give up? Will you give up meal after meal? Will you give up living in nice places and live just in a cheap place and do without? I've had to do that many, many times. He who finds his life will lose it. If you spend your life finding your life, you're going to get what's good and what's nice and what's convenient. You will lose your life. If you're willing to give your life, if necessary, give up your home, sell some of your possessions, go all out to serve the great God who gives you life and breath, then you will have life forever in God's kingdom. He knows what you're really putting first. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added. So he said, he who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. So you've got to be willing to lose your life if need be. I have two brethren, and uh, I hope I've tried to show that in doing the various things I have done down through the years, expose myself to danger many, many times and lose sleep and lose meals and stay in little junky places and all the rest of it. But we've got to be willing to do that to have eternal life, and we've got to go through persecution in order to have eternal life. Turn now to Luke, if you would, brethren. Luke chapter 6 now, and I want to start here. Luke chapter 6 and verse 22. Jesus says here in this passage, Blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you. Do you feel bad when men exclude you because you're not in the right social set? You attend this Saturday-keeping church and you don't have hot shots in the community. You're not a member of the Rotary Club anymore or whatever it is. And revile you and cast out your name as evil. For the Son of Man's sake, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For indeed your reward is great in heaven. 
But woe to you who are rich. If people are rich and they're just have their minds on that, it's not a sin to be rich, but normally people who are rich have their minds on that. For you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. That's something to think about. We should try to set an example. Other scriptures tell us that. But if we as a church are so careful and so nice and saying so many nice things that we never get persecuted, we better start worrying. (laughs) Let's understand that. Woe when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, even when they come after you, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who uh, spitefully use you. So we are to pray for others when they try to hurt us. Have God's people been persecuted? Yes, they always have. Notice the book of Acts, brethren. Let's turn to a few examples when the whole book of Acts is full of them, so I won't even begin to commence to read them all. In Acts chapter 5, let's begin in verse 27 of Acts chapter 5. God says here, when uh, they had brought the apostles... This is right after Christ's ascension and the the church began to preach, Peter and John and James. They brought them before the Jewish Sanhedrin. And the high priest asked them, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name, in the name of Christ? And look, you fill Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. Then Peter and the other apostles answered. Notice Peter was always the leading one. God has always had a leading man. That should not be a mystery Just read the book of Acts over and over and over and over. Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. And they went right back. They were standing before the Supreme Court of the Jewish nation, so to speak. They didn't say, Oh, well, we'll do whatever you say. said, No, we're going to have to obey God rather than you guys. They said it a little bit more respectfully, but that's what they were saying. And the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered. Now, that wasn't very nice to say that, was it? (laughs) You murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to be prince and to give forgiveness. And we're witnesses. And so is the Holy Spirit to those who obey him. And when they heard this, they were furious and took counsel to kill them. Then Gamaliel, this wise teacher of the law, he warned them about it. He said, keep away from these men, verse 38, let them alone. For this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you be found to fight even against God. And so they kind of had to think about that, because this was one of the most respected teachers of rabbis in the whole world. He's the one the apostle Paul was trained under, by the way. And they agreed with him, and when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, then uh, they let them go and commanded them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And so they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Did they go out saying, oh my, we've come, we're in the wrong church here. And did the brethren all leave, saying, well, we're in the wrong church here. This isn't a very nice church because the ministers are thrown in jail. The ministers are beaten up. What's going on? 
Well, brethren, it's not going to happen in exactly the same way as it did back then, but we're going to have things like that. I've been astonished it hasn't happened today more than it has did in the past. But the day will come when some of our ministers will be beaten up. They will be thrown in jail. And as I've said to some of you, I think God has been very merciful and maybe yet merciful to some of us older ministers as we were beaten up to the extent the apostle Paul was. If uh, Mr. Apartian were still alive and, and I were and Mr. Ames and some of us, but our 70s and 80s and 90s, we, we would just probably die. They were all in their 30s then. And they were able to take that, you know, and get over the beating and get over the blood on their back and bounce back. So God has not caused it to happen exactly that way. But it is going to happen to some. And it is going to happen in principle to all of us. Because men hate the truth. They hate the light. And they love the darkness because their deeds are evil. And when we come and preach the truth, that convicts them. And that makes them feel very guilty. Very mad. And they're going to react to that. So they were beaten. And then they went out rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for Christ's name. And did they give up? No, they kept right at it. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Jesus as the anointed one. And, of course, that is what we ought to preach We've talked about that somehow. Christ is so important. He's our Savior. He's our living head, our high priest, our coming king, the coming king of the kingdom of God. And yet some people in God's church, it's absolutely astonishing to me. They get all upset and say, well, you're talking too much about Jesus. And all you should talk about is just the kingdom of God. What did these men talk about over and over and over in the book of Acts? They talked about Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. That's what the original apostles talked about. They talked about the kingdom of God too, but they talked about that even more because that was the big thing right then. That's not the big thing right now because it happened 2,000 years ago, and we find we shake people, we get their attention better, we help them better, talking about what's just ahead of us today, the coming government of God on this earth. But we must never forget the whole thing revolves around God working through Jesus Christ as our Savior. And that he died. And we should thank God as we pray every morning. Father in heaven, thank you for giving us your son, Jesus, to come into this earth. And to set us the example. Think about it. Thank God that Jesus came here to set us the the perfect example of how we ought to live in every way and to qualify to be our merciful and faithful high priest and our coming king and the living head of the church. And thank God that he was then willing to give his body to be broken in that terrible scourging, that by his stripes we were healed. And thank God that he then gave his life, shed his blood on the cross to pay for our sins that we could be reconciled reconciled to God from all our vanity and jealousy and lust and greed and all the stupidity that all of us have been in in the past and hopefully are still repenting of day by day. So we've got to thank God for Jesus Christ. And they preach that over and over. Read back in chapter 12 now. Turn, if you would, with me, brethren, to chapter 12. There are many other examples, but notice this example in chapter 12. 
Here it says in verse 1, Now about that time Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some of the church. So they got some persecution from Herod, this, this wicked king. Then he killed a James. Were all the apostles invincible and no one ever got killed? No, James had his head cut off early on in the New Testament. And he killed him with a sword. And because he saw that it blessed, or pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter. So he did throw Peter in jail. He was the human leader. What if I'm thrown in jail? You're going to say, oh, Mr. Meredith's a bad guy. He's thrown in jail. Well, I am a bad guy and I've been bad. But I'm not, you know what I mean, I'm not doing all kinds of bad now from any normal human standpoint. But they're, they're not going to like what I preach. If I'm thrown in jail, that should stir you or Mr. Ames or Dr. Winnell or any of our leading men like Mr. Weston or anyone else is thrown in jail for the sake of God's truth. It ought to stir people to get on their knees and cry out to God more and more. And so he was put in jail, and Herod intended to bring him forth after the Passover. So they were keeping the Passover. Peter was therefore kept in prison, uh, and constant prayer was offered to the, for him by the church. So the church was praying for Peter. Every day, Father, let Peter out of jail. Please intervene, guide him, open the jail, and so on. And so here one night, Peter was found sleeping between two chains. They had chains on all over him between two soldiers, and guards were there beside an angel of God. There are real angels, and those angels will deliver some of us before it's all over. You know that. As we get closer to the end, brethren, you and I need to be more aware of the spirit world around us. And that spirit world is composed of God the Father, of Jesus Christ, of the cherubim, the seraphim, and is composed of then the regular angels who are out here who are ministering, serving as it ought to be, serving spirits sent to serve us who are heirs of God's kingdom. They're as here around as our servants. There are angels all around us in this room right now. There are probably more of God's true people here than very few places on earth. Kansas City might have a few more or somewhere else. But there are a lot of God's people here, God's true people in his true church. So this angel came and stood by him and whacked him on the side, <laughs> said, rise quickly as chains fell off. Just supernaturally fell right off. As I've said, brethren, if they ever get me and they put me in this super prison, high-tech prison out somewhere west of uh, Denver, out in Colorado somewhere, they could never, ever get me out of there, could they? Well, of course, you know, I read these things so much, I hope I'll still have that attitude if I'm thrown there, but I'm pretty sure I will. I've thought it through so many times. Is God bothered by what prison they put you in? Well, of course not. That doesn't make any difference to God. What if they strap me? Or what if they strap... Maybe Mr. Legal tell a really bad joke here someday before the judge and he'll have Mr. League. They'll have chains around him and put him in a capsule. They'll reactivate the space program and they'll send Mr. League into outer space. You know, he can never come back. He'll just keep going and going. God could never get him back from outer space, could he? Well, you know what I mean when you ask the question. To mankind, this is the world here, this like our microphone, and to the world compared to the universe, this is outer space. 
outer space. The rest of the space is all around and 100,000 miles beyond. You know what I mean? Man thinks he's conquered space. He gets about this far off the earth. It's like nothing to God. Is God going to have difficulty getting Mr. League back? Well, some of you may hope he doesn't, but, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> little persecution. He's getting persecuted ahead of time. <laughs> anyway, but no, he won't have any trouble getting us back from outer space or wherever they put us. But in all joking aside, it's good that we think it through. And as I said in a sermon I gave a year or two ago on persecution, this is totally different today. But brethren, Think about these things ahead of time. You and I need to heed the Boy Scout motto. The Boy Scout motto is be prepared. The way you could prepare is to study, to meditate, to pray, to fast and seek God and to walk with God day by day and actively give your life to God and learn to actually walk by faith. Build absolute faith and trust in the invisible God. We don't see God now, but we see what God does. And he does things over and over to bless us, to deliver us, to guide us in a way he never did until we were converted or began obeying him. He is there. And as we see these tremendous things happening to the major nations of the world, just like God said in his Bible, it helps us realize you better believe God is there. And God can deliver us from any prison. God could deliver us from any space capsule. God could allow uh, bad guys to throw us in the lion's den, literally, or in the fiery furnace, like he did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I know it would be kind of scary, but if we say, well, those men went through it, and that same God is there, and I'm his servant, put your faith in God and think through ahead of time, what would you do? What would you do if men come and start to beat up on you? Would you grab a gun if you had someone and shoot them? Well, the best thing's not to have that kind of gun anyway. I don't have any gun. I don't want to shoot anybody. I used to have a hunting rifle, and I sold it back to Mr. Carl McNair because he was a hunter, and I, I was getting older and it wasn't hunting anymore. But at any rate, uh, he just had hunting rifles, and I'm sure he didn't carry them around loaded to shoot people at all. But we must not think about how we're going to hurt someone, but how God is going to protect us. And it must be real. God is real, and his deliverance is real, and his protection is real. But we've got to prepare ahead of time to pray for our enemies. And we've got to prepare ahead of time to go through real persecution and rejoice if we're beaten up and we come out and we have to go to the hospital and get some stitches on our face and and places where we've been beaten up say paul went through it peter and james and john went through it god's servants have been going through it down through time and god will give us a greater reward for all eternity if we live that way of life and walk with god and put our faith and trust in the god of the bible this is what the bible talks about no matter what So the angel came and his chains fell right off and the angel said, get on your clothes and come out. And he said, finally, when he got outside and the angel departed in verse 11, he says, I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and delivered me. And then they came to the house of Mary, the mother of Mark, where the brethren were gathered praying. And it shows they were praying, but they were kind of like us, you know, in a sense they didn't have perfect faith. And, And when Peter came to the door, they couldn't believe it was Peter. 
And the little girl said, it's Peter, it's Peter. They, oh, no, honey, you're just mixed up. And finally, one of the adults came to the door and it was Peter. God did deliver him. And he did deliver these people over and over and over again, all the way through in these various encounters. Back in chapter 14, turn to chapter 14 of the book of Acts. Here is Peter, I mean Paul and Barnabas out on this first evangelistic tour. And they were over here in Antioch. And, uh, no, they were in Lystra, I guess. And the Jews came down from Antioch in verse, uh, and Iconium in verse 19, Acts 14, 19. And having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul. Paul had rocks crushing at him, crushing his skull. And blood was pouring out, and he was probably lying in a pool of blood on the ground and had was either dead or like dead. You can't be positive, but it seems like the Bible is indicating that Paul actually was dead. And they dragged him out of the city. Apparently, all that dragging, he didn't move or breathe, so he must have been dead, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered together around him, he rose up. And what did he do? He says, oh, I'm all upset. This, 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 this ministry is too tough. I don't like this. I'm going back to the world. No, he rose right back up. And you read the story in Acts. He went right back through those same cities again, preaching the truth. And so then he returned in verse 21 at Lystra to Iconium and Antioch. He came right back through those same cities. Verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith that all involves faith in God. And you've got to prepare by building faith in the reality of God. Will God let some of us older people die? Is that going to shake your faith? I hope it doesn't. I've told you many times, and my wife doesn't like to hear it and understand that, but I could die. I'm 81 years old. I'm 11 years older than King David was, who died old and full of days at age 70. So I'm living on borrowed time. I remember a first college physician. He was a very distinguished man, actually had his doctorate from Harvard University, Dr. Ralph E. Merrill. And he would come over from Glendale and really enjoyed Mr. Armstrong. But he had his liver, I think, about three-fourths of his liver cut out. And he was around 70 or 72. And he said, I'm living on borrowed time. And that was true. He died a few years later. But once you get past 70, that's where you are. And if God will let some of us older people die, uh, that's not strange. God doesn't keep everyone alive till exactly age 80. Most men die somewhere between 65 and 85. That's just a normal thing. If some of us live past that, or even way up into the upper reaches of that, as I'm starting to do, that's just a blessing. We have extra time, and we can be thankful for that. But Paul was exhorting them to continue in the faith, saying, We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. We're going to be tried and tested. Tried and tested. God is testing you. Will you pass the test? So when they had anointed or appointed elders, they didn't vote, they didn't politic. Notice all the way through the Bible, I was talking to one of the leading men a few weeks ago from one of these other groups, and I said, well, just I will give you $1,000 of my personal money, and I'm on personal money, if you could show me one verse in the Bible 
where God ever had any other form of government rather than hierarchical government by appointment, where God appointed directly or his servants appointed, like Paul, you know, told uh, Titus. I'm digressing from the main subject here, but that's all right. This comes to mind. Back in Titus chapter 1, in verse 5, this is Titus chapter 1, verse 5, Paul writes to this young evangelist, he was not an apostle, the evangelist Titus, for this reason I left you in Crete, this great big Mediterranean island, where I've been there, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint. No voting, no posturing, no committees and all this, no, that you appoint, you, Titus, appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. I didn't suggest it. I commanded you to do that. And Titus no doubt did do that. He appointed elders in every city. That was God's government. And God is trying to teach us that same government. And if we're going to be in that government in a very few years, teaching that very form of government, we'd better be learning it and applying it today. We are preparing for the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the government of God. So we've got to understand that. And it's very important. So back in chapter 14 of Acts, verse 23. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they constantly fasted back there. They commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. So anyway, that's uh, what happened back there. God said through Paul, uh, my key verse is verse 22. He said, we must through many tribulations, trials, tests, persecutions, enter the kingdom of God. It's not all going to be wine and roses, not all going to be hugs and kisses all along the way. So we've got to really understand that. Now, brethren, let's turn to the book of First Peter, if you would. First Peter, and I'm going to be reading here in chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. He's talking about to the brethren, you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, walking in this faith, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Yes, God lets trials, tests, persecutions come on us. That the genuineness, how genuine is your faith? Will your faith hold up under persecution? Will your faith hold up under various trials? He's testing the genuineness of my faith and your faith. That it might be much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. And fire is often used as a symbol of persecution, testing, that it may be found in the praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we do need to understand that. Brethren, turn to Philippians chapter 1 now, if you would. Philippians, and I'm going to turn to chapter 1, and uh, let's begin reading in verse 18. Paul is writing here about false preachers who would often even attack him, apparently, when they preached, but they were still preaching Christ. And so he said, because Christ was not yet widely known in the Roman Empire, and so he said, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, 
And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my salvation through your prayers and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Through your prayers. And brethren, I need your prayers. Mr. Ames needs your prayers. All of us ministers need your prayers to do God's work. We hope you will pray for us. Please pray for the latest coworker letter. We can only get on so many stations. We want to do more. I don't want a bigger house. I don't want a bigger car. I certainly don't want a different wife. I don't want anything bigger than what I've got. I really mean that. The only thing I want is to get on more television stations. I want to gracefully increase the power of the Internet. I pray that God will give us more ministers and we'll have the money to hire them as God provides and that we could have an impact on this very confused world. That's what we need. And Paul asked God and his people to pray. So he said, pray for us. According to my earnest expectation that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or death. No matter what happens, if I die, I hope that Christ can be magnified in what I do. If I magnify Christ by dying as a martyr, that's good. If I live on to serve God's people in the flesh, that's good. For to me, to live is Christ. In other words, if I live or you live, let it be Christ living in us. It's Christ's life continuing through this human flesh, this human instrument. To live is Christ and to die is gain. If we die in the faith and that attitude, you know what I mean, why we, we can't, we can't lose our salvation. In certain ways, Mr. Uh, McNair and Mr. Uh, O'Gwen and some of the men who've died in the faith are better off than I am. I could still fall away. And they can't fall away. They've got it made, and I know they'll be there to die as gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor. Yet what I shall choose I cannot tell, but I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. So you see his attitude, whether he got killed as a martyr, that's good. Or whether he went on to live and to go through trials and tests, if that's what God wanted, that's good. His life was God's life. You put your faith and trust in God no matter what. And that's what Paul did. So if we have that attitude, we will go through the tests that are come. We will go through persecution that is going to come. And we will understand. And we can see the big picture and the purpose that Almighty God is working out in all of this. Turn back, if you would, now to Jeremiah 37. Brethren, Jeremiah chapter 37, and here is talking about how ancient Babylon and was uh, uh, overcoming and conquering Judah. And then Zedekiah reigned, verse 1, instead of Caniah, the son of Jehoiakim, whom Nebuchadnezzar made king of Judah, but neither he nor his servants nor the people of the land gave heed to the words of the Lord by Jeremiah. Does that sound familiar? How many people in Charlotte give heed to what we're saying? They don't pay attention. Most of them don't know about us. That's the problem. We've got to be much bigger and have an impact. Even then, most of them won't listen. Then Zedekiah, the king, sent to Jeremiah saying, Please pray 
to our God for us. He apparently recognized, even though he didn't always obey, that Jeremiah was God's servant. And Jeremiah was coming and going among the people, for they had not yet put him in prison. So Jeremiah at this point was still able to wander around. In verse 11, And it happened when the army of the Chaldeans uh, left the siege of Jerusalem, when Pharaoh's army came up to threaten them, then Jeremiah went out to wander around the land, and one of the captains seized Jeremiah, verse 13. He said, You're defecting to the Chaldeans. He was preaching that they were going to punish Israel. Well, you're, you're disloyal because you're saying that this United States of Europe is going to conquer us. What's wrong with you guys? And then Jeremiah said, It is false. I'm not defecting to the Chaldeans, but he did not listen to him. So this bad guy seized Jeremiah and brought him to the princes, and they were angry with him and struck him. They probably hit him with their fist or with clubs. They weren't nice in those times. They were drawing blood and put him in prison. So here was Jeremiah put in prison, and uh, they were treating him very, very roughly. Then you find, of course, as you go on, that uh, it says in verse 21, uh, Jeremiah remained in prison. They gave him some bread. The king said, feed him something. But Jeremiah remained in the court of the prison right on through this siege of ancient uh, uh, Judah. And then in chapter 38, let's turn there. Then you find in chapter 1 that Shephatiah and these men heard the words of Jeremiah that he'd spoken. And uh, he said, thus says the Lord, he who remains in the city shall die by the sword. And he goes out to the Chaldeans shall have his life. They said, you're disloyal. You're saying you're to go over to the Chaldeans. And so they were against him even here, yet he was telling them what God said. And so they took Zedek, Jeremiah. And you remember this story. We preached about this a number of times and let him down into a mire. It says in verse 8, they took Jeremiah, cast him into the dungeon of Malchiah, the king's son, which was in the court of the prison. And they let Jeremiah down with ropes. What if they took Mr. Ames and led him down by ropes into some terrible miry swamp or uh, lowly dungeon somewhere? It, or any one of us. It wouldn't be very much fun. It would seem like we're not very important. And we're not. We're all made of the dust. And I'm made of the dust. But God allowed that to happen to his prophets all through time. They put him down in the mire. And Jeremiah sank in the mire. But a very wonderful black man came to his rescue. So it shows here how Ebed-Melech, Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, one of the eunuchs, heard about Jeremiah. This man apparently had heard Jeremiah preach, had seen some things Jeremiah prophesied come about. He knew, as many men, black, white, yellow, all recognized Mr. Armstrong was a minister, a servant of God. And they knew that. And he knew that about Jeremiah. So he got permission from the king to go get him out. And then he went and got ropes and old clothes and rags and let them down by ropes, verse 11, into the dungeon of Jeremiah. And he said to Jeremiah, please put these old clothes and rags under your armpits. And Jeremiah did. So they pulled Jeremiah up with ropes and lifted him out of the dungeon. And Jeremiah remained in the court of the prison. And God let this be okay. Somehow he guided these men's minds so they didn't come back and get him. 
Then Zedekiah, the king, again, he was kind of two-faced. He was afraid of these other guys around him that didn't like Jeremiah. But in his heart, he was afraid of Jeremiah. He knew he was a true servant of God. So he had Jeremiah brought to him at a, a private area, apparently, and said, I will ask you something. Hide nothing from me. And Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, I, if I declare it to you, you will surely not surely put me to death. He said, you promise you won't kill me? And Zedekiah then promised and so forth. So then he swore secretly and uh, he asked Jeremiah to tell him what would happen. And Jeremiah told him again what was going to happen. And it did happen. But, of course, Zedekiah still didn't repent. But then finally, in chapter 39, read over here in Jeremiah 39, verse 1. In the ninth year of Zedekiah, the king of Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, one of the most powerful kings in all human history. And all his army came against Jerusalem and besieged it, penetrated the city, and, of course, conquered it in time. And what happened? Most of you know, as we say, the rest of the story. But when that happened, even the king of Babylon had been alerted in some way that this man, Jeremiah, was a prophet of the creator of the Lord God of the armies of Israel. And Nebuchadnezzar gave charge to his leading captains about Jeremiah And he told the captain of the guard, take him and look after him and do him no harm. Don't harm my servant or God's servant, but do him just as he says to you. So this great king, Nebuchadnezzar, who was king of the kingdom of gold, the greatest Gentile kingdom in all human history, was guided by God to protect God's human servant. And so then... In verse 15, the word of the Lord had come to Jeremiah while he was in prison saying, and then he did this, go and speak to Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian saying, here's the message from God to this black man who had rescued his servant out of the miry pit and risked his life to do that. Behold, I will bring my words upon this city for adversity. I'm going to conquer this city. And not for good, and they shall be performed in that day before you. But, verse 17, I will deliver you in that day, says the ever-living one, and you shall not be given into the hand of the men of whom you're afraid, for I will surely deliver you. God told Ebed-Melech this, I will surely deliver you, and you shall not fall by the sword, but your life shall be as a prize to you, because you have put your trust In me. That means a lot to God. And brethren, the longer I live and the more I've studied the Bible, the more I realize how important that is. It really is, brethren. It's one of the main things all through the Bible. If you are willing to really prove to yourself that God is there and put your trust in God and do what God says because you know he's there, you know his right, or risk your life because you know he's there, you know his right, God will take care of you. And in the coming trials and tests and tribulations, and in the coming persecutions, where they're going to scream at us and kill some of us, we're going to have to have faith in God and know that he is there and put our faith and trust in God.